0: Had to go about it write it out and find it myself and there's some stories i can tell you yeah. this is the final word story time 169 with uh, jeff lemon and adam collins and you the person or people listening good to have you here 169 is the number what does it bring to mind what what bubbles up to the surface, Adam, when 169 comes into your head. I mean, it's something that everybody wants, at least one, <laughs> but um, what else?
1: Well, debatable. No, I looked up, uh, I, I thought, knowing you'd throw that to me, I, I wonder what the cat numbers are. Don Talon was the one hundred and sixty nine Australian man to wear the baggy green, of course, the first choice okay. keeper during the Invincibles Tour of 1948, Queenslander. Mm-hmm. Would have been a, a shock to the system, keeping here in, in early May, I suspect, given the difference in climate. We've got that right now, actually, as we record this. It's a, a bitterly cold winter's day, rain pouring down. Had to have two umbrellas to get the girls to nursery this morning. I had Peggy, <laughs> Peggy with me, Rach had Winnie with her, and uh, you know, I'm wearing the the turtleneck here. I bought myself a skivvy in Paris a couple of weeks ago, actually, a more conventional kind of traditional- Skivvies are back. Skivvy, skivvies are back. That's exactly what I thought as well. So I bought a jacket the other day that I thought might quite quite nicely with my black skivvy, so watch this space and whether I'm bold enough to roll out that combination. (laughs) If I keep going to yoga every day, keep developing, you know, the the strength Mm. through the chest and um, get rid of the, the flabby bits, then maybe I might get that out in the summer, time will tell.
0: Okay, well, you could bust out, instead of the the newsboy cap that you've been wearing at times, the extra, extra, read all about it, you could just go the full beret and skivvy combination, yeah. maybe, if you really want to lean into it, you know, well, I've been spending a lot of time in Paris recently, <laughs> and, uh, well it's just a different lifestyle over there, isn't it? Just a different lifestyle. You ever smoked a black cigarette? You get yourself some of those black cigarettes that, that are like vanilla flavoured paper or whatever.
1: Yeah, they, they, what they call, they're called they uh, called cigarette, cigarella? Is that what they called the cigarillo? Cigarillo. Fi- you know who used to smoke them? Um, uh, Tim Colbatch, who died a couple of weeks ago, the great correspondent for the Age, who mm. passed away. Having, I've got a great memory of Tim when he was uh, working. Uh, often the correspondents would come on tour and come overseas on the big trips and so on. And there was this quite patronising question that asked all of the reporters going on this trip. I don't know where we were going, somewhere or another in Asia, I think it was. To, to validate that they're actually reporters. And Tim simply wrote, the greater than sign, 10,000 newspaper articles. Fucking have that. So he used to smoke those uh, very thin uh, 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 cigarettes that you're referring to there. So he would have been mm. right in, in Paris and yeah, a great of the, the caper and a brilliant mind. So, uh, yes, uh, Vale, Tim Colbatch, didn't expect to be saying that at the start of the show, but here we are.
0: Here we are. Sometimes things end up where we, we don't expect them. Are you – you, well, you're going to get out of there because you're going to come here. Although at least in Melbourne, if not in well, in, in a fair, fair bit of Australia, the summer has been pretty non-summer as well. Mm. It's better, better than the bushfire summers, but it hasn't been a hot summer. We had one hot day on Sunday and then immediately it was like – Eighteen degrees and freezing the next day, and that's about
1: it. I think we're going to have the hot Matt, hot Matt Henry Indian summer, aren't we? Because we're going to be in New Zealand watching mm. Matt Henry bowl in March. So that that all lines up quite neatly. Oh yeah. If he if he turns it on, of course he will. Love Matt Henry. Yeah, I, I'm um I'm sort of starved a bit for cricket in the flesh. It's been a while. It's been a month, grasping for it. So um I was watching uh, YouTube clips last night of the Gibraltar national team. On the basis that I'm travelling to Gibraltar in April to play mm-hmm. to play against them, um, I was just I was just curious what the standard was like, and you know they, they're, they're ranked 67th right. in the world in T20 is because okay. you know since 2019 all of the men's internationals and yep. women's as well have had that designation. But yeah, I didn't mm. I didn't. There's realize. about
0: 15 people who live there, so that's yeah, good going.
1: It's the third smallest member of the ICC in a population of 34,000, mm. so that's where they're drawing yep. their cricketers from. I'll do an episode on Gibraltar when I'm there. I'm there. I think I'm there for five nights on this tour. So okay. I'll um I'll mm. do a Gibraltar episode and we can get a sense of how life has changed for these cricketers who I suppose they would have seen themselves as club players and now they're international mm. players and you get the uh, get the privilege of playing against them on their home track which I now have learned is a synthetic pitch as well. So I bought myself some new spikes, you know, as you do preparing for a new season I'm going to bring them with me to Melbourne when I see you in a couple of weeks I'm trying to jag a game when I'm there possibly with uh, Glenn Finkeld from our Nerd Pledge CSI group down at Hampton but um, yeah I won't need them in Gibraltar because it's hard wicket so we'll be in the in the trainers Mm. but yeah looking forward to it.
0: It's interesting I stopped in there last year you know did a A fair bit of driving around Europe, and I'm just interested in weird tiny countries. Mm. So last year went through um, Andorra, Liechtenstein, Vatican City, uh, San Marino, and Gibraltar, where five of the micronations didn't get to San Marino. But you know, they're pretty decent collection. And yeah, it's it's a weird join. It's like it's it's like this sort of. Odd little bit of the British suburbs has been cut off and then dropped into the, this Mediterranean climate um, on the water. There are these big sort of townhouses built on these sort of you know, these fake pontoons that they've they've sent out into the sea so that they can put more buildings on them. It's a strange place. And I also met a final word listener there. I was having dinner at the foreshore ah. and um, this fellow walked past and went, "Oh, I listen to your show." <laughs> and I was like, "Well, I guess out of everywhere in Europe, it's probably Gibraltar where that's more likely to happen." Uh, but we had a nice Nice old chat.
1: I wonder if I run into him when I'm there. The the, the probability is strong. I would say that if you're a cricket mm. fan, you might get down and watch, I don't know, see how things play out. But, uh, yeah, the I, I, I quite like ticking countries off. I think I'm in the low 50s at the moment, so Gibraltar will be another addition. I didn't consider doing the swing through the, the smaller nations in Europe. Maybe that's um, one for a road yep. trip when the kids are old enough.
0: Yeah, Andorra sucks. It's like an outdoor shopping mall. Um, but, you know, San Marino, interesting. There's some, an angry sailor who was on the run from the law who just – Got up on top of the mountain. Well, he wasn't actually a sailor. he was like a monk. Um, but he was, he was, he came across from Croatia on a on a ship, and then buggered up to the top of the mountain and built a fort so they couldn't come and get him. I, I read last. Things. I
1: read last week that San Marino have had 170 entries shortlisted for the Eurovision int- uh, ultimate contestant this year. So there's, there's wow. a lot of interest in. getting – I think that was on Popbit somewhere that. Uh, um, that, uh, mm. you know, the demand, it, that, that's the only real context I have for San Marino. So maybe we'll go on a cricket tour there one day, Jeff. We'll do a tour of the micronations. Yep. it would be very on brand you for would, us.
0: You would be lucky to find somewhere to, to build a pitch. There's not a lot of um, flat ground in San Marino. And it's more Italian than anywhere in Italy um, in terms of cuisine and language and all the rest of it. Anyway, what else have we got? We're, yep. uh, marathon stuff. You've got So you've got back to London with all of the Maxwell for Australia t-shirts as well. You you managed to take like 10 kilograms of Maxwell shirts back with you so that you can dish them out in the UK. Yeah.
1: I I've, I don't think I've actually mentioned this on the podcast. I certainly have on Discord, but yeah, the challenge we've had with our Maxwell t-shirts in the past is that they're based in Australia, which means that you can purchase them on the League T's website and that's great. And we support that behavior. But there of course is a, you know, a fee to get the shirt to where you are in the world. If you're in the UK, yeah, I've taken 10 kilograms worth of shirts back here. I've got about, I don't know, 100 of them, I guess, in all different shapes and sizes um, that Anthony Costa kindly prepared for our- Probably more like 50. Live I think. shows. You know, I, th- I think he, he might have, I think there's quite a few. Anyway, point stands that a lot of shirts here and all you need to do is let me know if you want one and I'll send you through my bank details. You can send me 20 quid. So instead of 35 bucks, we'll make it 20 quid, make it easy. I'll work out the postage, which will be like, you know, Rachel always sends stuff off on Vinted, so she'll probably help me with that, probably like, a quid or something, and that'll be a far more efficient way of, um, of doing it if you're in the UK. So Maxwell for Australia T-shirts. All right. If you're over here in England or somewhere on the British Isles, get in touch and I will send mm-hmm. one your way. Even if you're in Gibraltar, I can bring one with me in April.
0: Yep, yep, totally. You can deck out the entire Gibraltar national team. Maybe uh, I will. The Lord's Taverners Marathon, <laughs> the, marath- the Marathon's shut. There's no more marathon. There's no more half marathon. Yeah. We're down to 10Ks. Let me tell you, that is a good thing. That is a blessing. If you're thinking of going, 10Ks is a lot better to run than 21Ks, and it's even better than 42. <laughs> so you, you've successfully dodged two bullets if you've been putting it off, and you can now safely get into the 10K without anyone bullying you to upgrade to a 21 or a 42.
1: As I pull out my phone, I got a message yesterday from and Haynes who wanted to run the half, and unfortunately Lucian has missed the missed the cutoff, but will be with us for the 10 k So you can do that as well. You've got so much time to prep for it. I reckon you could do two weeks of training to run a 10. No, even less. You can go on four runs and be good enough to run it. If you can run 5K, you can run 10K. So from there, your adrenaline will get you over the line. We've got so much stuff planned. The tabs are taking us out for brunch after the half, before the marathon ends. We're going out for dinner on the Friday night as well. We're doing... A big night out on the Sunday uh, following the the long runs, and we'll be uh, watching some cricket on the Saturday afternoon. Probably watching AB's club team play. So it's a great weekend. Be part of it. Get in touch with Jeff or me. We're both going to be up there in Scotland, all for the Lord's Taverners and our fundraising. Our goal of thirty thousand uh, pounds will kick off. Let's say next week. I'll start it on Valentine's Day. We'll give us. It'll give us uh, yeah about three and a half months to to get to the target. So, um, you yeah, know, roughly whatever that works out to be about a about 10 grand a month from there, which I'll back us in to do. All right.
0: Let's get on with the show via the medium of a game that we like to call... Nerd Pledge. Nerd Pledge. It is a game that we play with nice people on the internet who fund the program. They are the reason that this show happens, and they do it by sending in contributions in an amount of currency that is also a clue. It relates to cricket in some way. Rossi, for instance, has sent through $2.14 in USD. Um, That means we can interpret that number any way we want, but Rossi says the interpretation should be as a whole number, 214. The fourth time this event has happened, at least been recorded happening, in ODI
1: matches. Rossi, this is incredible timing. And remember, we don't fudge these at all. Even if we wanted to, we wouldn't. But Jeff, you have no idea what I'm about to say and you've dropped this number in. Let's go to the weekend first. Let's go to this weekend, just go on Mount Monganui, the New Zealand-South Africa test match that we were discussing on the weekly show. Mm -hmm. Daryl Mitchell, the Dazzler, made a rapid fire 50 odd. Can't remember exactly what he made. Jeff, you reviewed the test. You probably remember off the top of your head. Mm -hmm. He he made some runs. He made them quickly. They were trying to run the scoreboard up, as you do in a situation like that. And he was really walking at the bowlers. And by that, I mean, you know what Daryl Mitchell does, right? He tries to meet the ball in the half volley, often bats a foot outside of his crease, and then makes it two or three feet by the time the the shimmy is complete, or even a dance, which you see against the medium paces in in one-day cricket. Now- Nick Tuvey, who's a regular listener to this show and, uh, and and friend of ours, was watching the commentary on telly. And he heard Mark Richardson on commentary talking when Mitchell kept shuffling out of his crease. And he was so fascinated by the piece of commentary that he decided to immediately send it to me and get my thoughts on it. Now, what I'm going to do here is I pull my phone out again. I'm going to play you the the video off the telly and I'm going to play it down your speaker here. And hopefully you can hear it. And if you're watching on YouTube, you'll get that, that experience as well. And For those who are listening on the podcast, I'll send it to DC who will drop this in. Here we go.
0: At the moment, he's moving into it, similar to moving into it as a spin ball when you're charging. You know what I think he should do? Because the ball is live the minute you start your run up, isn't it? So get halfway into your run up, and when you see Mitchell crabbing down, just stop and throw it at the stumps. Because Mitchell can't touch it. That's obstructing the field. So he can't touch it, and he might forget that he's out of his crease. Run them out. You can't throw the ball because if you throw the ball, it's a no ball. No, 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 it's not. You're,
1: you're shy at the ball's life. It's a shy at the stumps. You're going for a run out. Have a shy at the stumps when you're running mm-hmm. into bowl for the ball is live mm-hmm. and throw mm-hmm. it at the batter's stumps who is facing up and is out of his crease. So, yep. Tuf sent this to me and yep. to Laura Corney, who's an official umpire, has been on the Irish panel and goes, what doing here? And this prompted quite the conversation on social media. So Toofs posted this. Johnny Singer, who works for the MCC, works with Fraser on the laws, got in touch and said, would you believe it? This is actually kind of true. Well, when I heard this, it's like spit out your cup of tea. Can you conceive of a scenario, Jeff, where a bowler would, on their run-up, stop, prop, and ping the stumps down? Let's just set that up. Have you ever heard of anything like that in the game of cricket?
0: well it's interesting. it relates to the, it's, it's, it's related to the Chris Green one that we talked about um, the last time we recorded the show where the ball's played back to the bowler who then picks it up and tries to throw the stumps down with the batter out of his ground but yeah i would I would some you know my my vibes interpretation of the laws would be that in the same way that you can run out the non striker um, as you arrive in your bowling stride because the ball is live at that time, as long as you hadn't launched into your bowling action in the same way that would disqualify a non-striker run out, you'd be able to throw the ball at the striker stumps to that point as well. So you wouldn't be able to bring your arm over and then stop and then throw it. But as long as, you, as long as your arm hadn't reached the perpendicular, you could even reach the bowling crease, have a foot on the bowling crease and then slide and throw the ball instead. Um, the only difficulty is how to get it around the player to try to actually hit the stumps, um, which would be the harder part, and not have the Chris Green situation where the ball is sufficiently close to the batter that they can legitimately block it away with their bat and claim that they're stopping it from hitting their body. So that's the thing is that the throw has to be far enough outside the line of the batter <laughs> that they can't legitimately use the bat to. Deflected away
1: let me tell you about law 21.4 and number here being 214 law 21.4 which goes to this exact scenario or at least until very recently it did so okay until 2022 what we're going through here what mark richardson former new zealand opening bat said on commentary was right so long as you weren't in your load up you were permitted to throw the stumps down i mean i've been playing cricket since i was in the fucking womb And I've never even thought of this, let alone conceived of it, Hmm. uh, let alone seen it or heard of it. But he's right. This scenario was totally legal until 2022. So even in the 2017 version of the good book, remembering that they update the laws every sort of generation or so. There was an update in 2001, in 1981, I think in 1946. So we're still dealing in the 2017 code and that gets updated every couple of years or whatever it is. And that's the versions within the code. And the last version update was in 2022. And in this scenario, it was completely legal. Now, I called Johnny Singer from the MCC because I'd seen his tweet back to 2s I'm like, I need to learn more about this. And he said that basically they got some correspondence in, or they they'd happened upon it, and they thought about it. And they're like, this is crazy in the modern game for this to still be like here when no one's ever heard of it before. They went around and asked a whole bunch of senior types within global cricket, had any of them heard of it ever happening? And it was a uniform no. So they made a decision to do away with it and change the law. So it now reads law 21.4, bowler throwing towards striker's end before delivery. If the bowler throws the ball towards the striker's end before entering the delivery stride, it is not a no ball, and the procedure stated in 21.3 shall not apply. However, either umpire shall call and signal dead ball under Law 20.4.2.9. In other words, how it would have worked previously, I would have thrown the stumps down. It would have been signalled a no ball for chucking, right? A no ball for throwing. It would have been considered a delivery, but you could still have the batter run out in that same exchange. I suppose one of the reasons that fed into can't this be run
0: out off a no ball,
1: quite. One of the reasons that fed into this was that when they were updating the obstructing law, which happened in 2022 as well, when Handle the Ball was folded into that, they were were considering all of the different variables and I guess the unintended consequences of that. And they arrived at the same conclusion that Mark Richardson did that, well, sorry, that Katie Martin, I think it was, the co-commentator that wouldn't the batter get done for obstructing the field? They're like, yeah, that's a good point. So that fed into this. So my first impression is Absolutely gutted that it wasn't on my radar when it was a law of the game. Uh, and think of the carnage. I mean, we've seen with man cutting that uh, as it's become more of a, a socialised understanding of how it works and, and so on, we've seen far more of it. But yeah, had this been more widely known before 2022, whether we would have seen attempts to run out batters at the striker's end. Um, so yeah, there we are. By sheer coincidence, this happens to be the law that I have fell upon. It was by, uh, I just Googled the law. I was curious what 21.4 was on the basis that the clue was the fourth <clears throat> time this event has happened and I thought, well, maybe it's something quirky like a mode of dismissal and it is. So it won't be the one that Rossi's steering towards. But Jeff, had this been something on our rate, right, I, I reckon bring it back. I reckon they should rescind mm. it in the next version update and and, and because of Daryl Mitchell, we'll call it the Daryl Mitchell law. Yeah. Um, to be Mitchell'd in the same way to be ManCab. Why man-cad.
0: shouldn't you? Well, I mean, if, if, you know, why is a batter allowed to set up Three meters outside the crease without having any risk attendant in yeah. doing so, uh, because the interesting thing is, if you were trying to do it rather than a flat throw at the stumps, you'd be better off having your keeper in on the plan and doing like not a lob but a fast high higher ball yeah. over the head of the batter, but just over the head of the batter um, that the keeper could glove and get the bails off. That'd be the way to do it. Um, to if, if you actually wanted to affect that, but you can't. But you, but
1: you can't be stumped off a of no ball, right? So it'd have to be it would have to be a wide. Now, when does it move from now I don't know the answer to this, I probably should. When does a delivery move from no ball territory to wide territory? Because no balls are above the waist.
0: If it it hasn't bounced, if it's if it's high if it's above the head without bouncing, it's a no ball. Right. So you have to keep Um, it below the waist. Regardless of how high. Right. So it
1: would have to be a full toss below the waist outside the tram tracks to make it a wide to then allow it could happen though, in baseball you see it, right? When they're trying to run out or they're trying to dismiss whatever the right word is here, probably wrong again. Someone who's stealing a base, they'll often throw wide to the catcher who will then throw at second base right? So you'd have to have mm. a similar configuration to that where the bowler would need to throw the ball wide, but not too high, and then get the, the batter out of their ground stumped. I like mm. it. It would be a no ball, mm. sure. Oh no, it would be a no ball, sorry, because of the chucking. They'd have to bowl it wide to keep their arms straight when yep. doing it.
0: Yep. Well, depending uh, in, depending if, the, um, if, if taking the bales off was ruled as a run out or a stumping because they're there's often some variation True. there as well, whether whether it's in the process of playing the shot, um, <laughs> kind of situation. Alternatively, you throw it to short leg instead of the keeper, and then it's definitely a
1: runner. Ah, yes, stumping. yes, I like it. More to come on this. More to come. Uh, as for two fourteen and Rossi, uh, four times in one day is the at least got a stumps. You know, the at least four times. So we're thinking it's probably one of those ones that gets measured sometimes and doesn't get measured. Other times, Minute Spattered is one of those. Right. Matt May and our Nerd Pledge group identified a one-day international as late as 2018 where they didn't measure how many minutes have been batted for, which seems quite unusual, but that doesn't work. There's some strike rate fun to be had here too, but none of it quite lands. So Glenn killed closest to the pin for now. Nathan Astle was the fourth player to hit exactly 21 falls in a one-dayer, but Saeed Amwa hit more than 21 falls before that. So the fourth player to hit exactly 21 falls in an ODI innings was Sanat Jayasuriya in his 189. Uh, where he hit um, 21 fours and, and four sixes. So, uh, I mean, given we've done so much on the law, I'm happy to leave it at that incorrect answer as well. We'll come back to it for a tasty rarity and oddity revisit at some stage for Rossi and her, her or his 214.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Hopefully Rossi is of the the family, the empire that makes all the boots the, um, the alternative to Blundstone Arena one day, <laughs> you know, in, in in Launceston, they'll have Rossi Arena as the, the, the competitor. All right. Good stuff. Uh, I've got Paco up next with $1.64. It's in Canadian dollars, but I don't imagine that it's anything Canadian uh, related. Although, oh, there might be a slight, there might be a slight little link. That's all. Just now that I think of this, because the, the clue does not relate uh,
1: to Canada in any way. Okay, so the clue is hashtag Nisa Must Play is the fourth to do it in the Mister Sheffield, but this gem was the first Aussie to achieve this feat. We had four instances in our first clue and four instances in our second clue. So we're on theme mm. here, Jeff for Paco. Okay.
0: All right, so the clue arrives in late October 2023 when Nisa is in the middle of his crazy run. He'd just played six county games for Glamorgan. In the second of those, he took three wickets and made 90 in one of his batting innings. The next game, he took seven for 32 the next he took 4 for 40 and then made 86 runs the next he took 3 for and then made 123 in the third innings and the next he made 176 not out um, so across his six games in that county season he'd made 487 runs in seven hits at an average of north of 81
1: can i throw a little curveball into this one have you considered where hat-tricks mm. might fit in this because of the fact that he picked up a i haven't picked I haven't, up a hat-trick i, I think in the 7 for 32 mm. that's the the hat trick where two were bold leaving. Um uh, oh, yeah. Dom simply the best and yeah, yeah. Can't remember who the other player was. But uh, anyway, I, I digress. Please continue because it's a okay. Sheffield Shield reference. So it's probably not going to be in yes. relation to the hat trick in the county championship.
0: It's not going to be the county. I'm just giving that as context for what he's doing okay. um, when he comes back to Queensland, in which his first game coming home, he takes three for and makes 140. <laughs> his next game, he takes a couple of wickets and makes 90. And then his next game, he gets promoted to number five. He makes a quick 51 not out by stumps. Uh, and then overnight, he has to return home. I Believe it's because his partner was having some complications with their twins during pregnancy. So he's recorded on the scorecard as retired out for 51. And they, they knew that he had to leave that night. So they put him up to number five so he could have a bash. And, and it ended up working because he was in good nick with the bat.
1: We got quite excited about that, didn't we? I think we were recording the show when he was 51, not out overnight. We're like, wow, mm-hmm. what a bold play from Queensland promoting Nisa to five. Mm-hmm. They're trying to get him in the test team as an all rounder. We didn't know that he was um, flying out that night for personal reasons. Yep. So
0: he misses a day of the game and then he returns. He makes four not out in Queensland's second innings. He takes a couple of wickets. So at this point, by my calculations, that's 790 runs in nine matches for a bowler, which is pretty good. Anyway, so the fourth to do what? Um, Obviously, my first thought was 105 wickets in a match because he's made three shield tonnes among his five first-class hundreds, but that's been done in the Shield 30-plus times mm, that a mm. player's taken a five for and made a hundred in the same game. He did do it when he made his first hundred against Tassie well, about four years ago now. He made 123, and he took five for 32. But I got distracted for a while because our number is one, its 164, but for some reason I wrote it down as 168, and I noticed that his hundred was off 80, 168 balls. So I started thinking, well, has that got something to do with it? And then somehow – I mean, this was a real this, – this is a series of own goals by me. <laughs> I, in my head, I started thinking that the innings was 168 runs rather than balls. And then I was like, well, what if it's players who took Fiverr and made 150-plus and then I found that Warwick Armstrong style Armstrong made 168 style. not out and took six for sixty-six against Armstrong New South Wales in 1906. So I was like, okay, well, what if the 168 is Warwick Armstrong? And then I've got to link it to the 168 balls that Nisa faced, and then I realized that it was balls that he'd faced, not runs that he'd made, and so I realized all of this was pointless. By this time I'd looked up a lot of stuff about 150s and Fifers in Shield cricket. That's been done ten different times, and Nisa isn't one of them, so that was all pointless.
1: I really hope in the edit that DC dropped in Warwick Armstrong style after you said that. We don't get many times, many opportunities to roll it out, so let's take it when it's there.
0: (laughs) Hoop, hoop, hoop. Okay, so it's not that. Next, we wondered about Keith Miller, cap number 168, and remember the clue says this gem was the first Aussie to achieve the feat. Keith Miller's nickname was Nugget, which you would apply to a piece of gold, which is almost, it's not quite a gem, but it's jewellery-related, and... Keith Miller, obviously being the greatest Australian all rounder, and Nisa on his way to becoming a great all rounder with this, this run of scores. But I kept coming back to fourth, fourth to do something, and this means it has to be bloody rare, right, across a hundred and what thirty years of Sheffield Shield or whatever it, whatever yeah. it, it turns out to be, hundred and twenty by the time we've played this much cricket, the fourth. The fourth to do what? So I kept coming back to the retired out. That was actually the first thing I'd thought about and then I kept returning to it, but there's no reliable way to find this dismissal, you know, unless you've got the some super-duper first-class cricket stats engine, which we don't have. I couldn't look this up. So I was digging around trying to find things and uh, was talking to the Nerd Pledge chat group and seeing if there was a way to, to do this. So there's there's one story that I found, which is that in 1971, um, a fellow named Graham Watson opening the batting for Western Australia makes 145 retired out. Um, They don't bat a second time. They beat Queensland by an innings. And uh, the story with that is that Graham Watson, he's on debut, first-class debut, Shield debut, and he cuts a ball into the gully and it's taken in the gully and he turns around and walks off. But it's been taken on the bounce. And the fielder hasn't claimed it. The umpire hasn't given it. But Graham Watson on debut has just gone, oh, well, I'm I'm out. And he's just walked. And I don't know if they didn't call him back loudly enough or if they were just surprised enough that they didn't react initially. But by the time he's been told that the, the catch hasn't carried, he's already left the field. So he can't come back. He's done. So Graham Watson gives himself out for 145, assuming that the catch has been taken and he's recorded on the scorecard as retired out. And then we're looking around, okay, so do we have others who've retired out in Sheffield Shield cricket? And there is. There is another one. You may remember this. When we did our 1913 United States tour episode, when an Australian team went to the US with Ernie Maine in that team and Arthur Mayley, the leg spinner, and Charlie McCartney, who made 300 in a day and all the rest of it, and they were playing the gentlemen of Philadelphia, a team that we've talked about a lot of the time, and they were also playing a combined Canadian and United States team, which is maybe why this pledge is in Canadian dollars. They were captained and I remember talking about this gentleman briefly at the time, but I didn't know much more about him by a guy called Austin Diamond. I remember we're looking for a gem. Austin Diamond. A New South Wales batter. <laughs> Yeah, but probably hopefully a better bloke, um, Austin <laughs> Diamond. So from 1899 to 1918, he plays um, for New South Wales. He captains New South Wales a number of times. Born in England, comes to Australia, uh, lives mostly in Canada Bay, which is interesting. Oh. That's where Drummond Oval of the modern era now
1: sits. My parents lived there for ten years as well. Just uh, in, the, they? they? lived on Canada Bay, just at the right. sort of in the Concord Canada Bay bit there. So yeah, there you go.
0: Okay. So Austin Diamond, electrical engineer by trade. He goes on this US tour, which is almost his last first-class cricket because then the war breaks out. He joins the AIF, the Australian Imperial Force. He's in the 19th Battalion. Some of the sources I was looking up said he was in the 18th, but I've looked at this in more detail and I'm confident that it was the 19th. Either way, both the 18th and the 19th get sent to Gallipoli, then end up on the Western Front, um, the 19th in France. I think the 18th is in Belgium partly. But Austin Diamond manages not to... Face those bits because he he signs up in 1917, um, which in a way is even more insanely brave to like once you already know what an absolute shit show the thing is and then to then to join up a couple of years into it.
1: Not least to join the battalion that's gone. You know that does. I don't think it gets much worse as a away day. You know Gallipoli followed by Western Front, right? No. Like, you know the, the, you hear those stories yeah. of the, those who saw active duty in both and how they. I mean, how the percentage of surviving if you were in both must have been yeah. so low. And then to sign up to the battalions that have been sent to both, yeah, that takes some, um, that takes some crazy brave personality traits, I guess.
0: Yeah. The, uh, the cruelty of the, the double blow. Mm. The guy we talked about who was, um, who was in Hiroshima and then got evacuated to Nagasaki just before that got bombed as well and managed to survive both of them.
1: Uh, um, I, 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 read, I read that guy's name in a novel I'm reading like two days ago. We can't yeah. make. This, we don't. We don't plan our. There was. A, I've got his. I mean, I could dig it out somewhere. I made a note in my book at the time mm-hmm. of um, the guy who went for business to Hiroshima. He's from Nagasaki, and then got yep. back to Nagasaki just in then time got to be
0: invalided back to Nagasaki in time to be bombed again. Yeah.
1: Anyway, there you go. And
0: still lived to eighty six or something. Yeah, yeah. we it came up on the show some. Some years ago. Uh, right, so 1917, signs up. He's a second lieutenant. He later gets promoted to full lieutenant and his battalion, it falls to them, to be one of the major defensive lines during the German Spring Offensive of 1918, which is a huge last push to try to get a decisive advantage before Germany finally runs out of steam and, and um, pushes for the surrender and the um, the peace negotiation that takes place after that. That's, that's their last big roll of the dice. So Austin Diamond gets gassed. Um, during the spring offensive, he gets evacuated to England and by September he gets invalided home to Sydney and a couple of months later he turns out for one last first-class match for New South Wales against the Vicks, December 1918, so just three months after he's got home. He takes a couple of catches, he makes Norton 11, they lose the game and he probably does not give the slightest shit because he's survived what he survived just before that.
1: That, that might be the first first-class game after the war. Because there was none in England until 1919 and we're talking here, yep. you know, a month after the Armistice. It could well be that that was like a, you know, a celebration game or something to that yep. effect. I mean, celebration is the wrong word, of course, but, you know, of course, they were the victory test in 1945. There might have been some mm. equivalent there in domestic cricket in Australia, possibly.
0: Yeah, I, I didn't look at whether there were others in that season before that, but mm. um, you know, it seems like there was something ceremonial about making sure that he got a game, having right. Captain New South Wales before the war. But the World War One is, is not the only period of awfulness in his life. So we go back to 1905. New South Wales are playing South Australia in Adelaide. Clem Hill makes a ton. South Australia make 390. New South Wales start piling on the runs. Austin Diamond is opening with uh, a fellow called James McKay. They put on a Century Partnership, then another big stand with Monty Noble and another one with a fellow called Ernest Waddy, who I've never heard of, but may learn about more about one day. At the close of play on day two, they're 357 for two. Austin Diamond is 164, not out. Our nerd pledge number is 164. And then, well, I would assume a telegram arrives given the era. The news arrives that his brother has died in Sydney And this is a story that Pat Rogers, our resident historian, has looked up before. Um, So he sent me this paragraph which says... Harry, the brother, had been given an overdose of morphine by a Mrs Annie Johnston who was charged with murder but found guilty of manslaughter. She was sentenced to one year and 11 months in Bathurst Jail. In May 1906, on appeal, her conviction was quashed. So, Austin Diamond gets this news that his brother's been murdered and leaves the match immediately and goes back to Sydney, becomes the first Shield player to be retired out for 164. So he's retired out in 1905. We've got uh, Graham Watson in 1971. We've got Nisa in 2023. And then as I was searching around desperately saying, well, there must be one more, Rick Finlay came to the rescue. Colin McCool in 1947, the Christmas Day game, actually, right in your area. The third day of that game on the 27th, it's between Queensland and uh, can't remember, South Australia maybe? No. Anyway, the third day of that match, he's batting at the crease on 10 when news arrives that his mother has passed away, so he leaves that game. And he's retired out on 10. So the fourth instance, there are four players who've been retired out in the history of the Sheffield Shield and uh, Nisa was the fourth and the gem, Austin Diamond, was the first in 1905.
1: There you go. And, and Cole McCool, who you mentioned at the end there, a, a tourist in 1948, had that great partnership with Talon when, when playing for Queensland. He was kind of how Talon made his reputation, taking these amazing stumpings off McCool's leg breaks. And they didn't get to combine too often in, in 48 because of the 55-over new ball Seems such a weird thing now, doesn't it, in hindsight? Like 55 overs for the second new ball. So Australia just front-loaded their side with seamers and Johnson was the only spinner and it meant that, yeah. you know, um, Talon didn't get to show his full bag of or full repertoire, I suppose. But uh, had they used another spinner, that probably would have been McCall, who ended up being one of the tourists who we've uh, referred to before who didn't do an awful lot in, in the test matches, if anything at all. I don't think McCall played at all. Hammond's played once, didn't he? Anyway, and uh, yeah, of course, we spoke about talent at the start of the show, cap number 169. So these things always find a way of coming back together on story time.
0: There we go. Two numbers, one solved, one not so solved. Patreon.com slash the final word if you want to send us in a nerd pledge. Before the break, let's talk CBUS briefly. We like Mm. CBUS. Um, They look up to people in their retirement. That's a nice thing. They're very proud about their heritage as Australia's one of Australia's top specialist super funds, which means that they provide super and income stream accounts to their more than 900,000 members um, in a fund tailored to
1: those members' circumstances and needs. Over the last 40 years, with support of organisations like the CFMEU, the ETU, and the MBA. So, again, there's that idea of employers and employees being represented in industry super funds. CBUS has evolved into a large nation building fund that invests to create superior investment returns for its members through investments such as CBUS property. In the coming years, CBUS anticipates the fund, through its commitment to investing in the real economy, will be an active participant in affordable housing and decarbonising the economy, amongst other opportunities in the Australian community. So a reminder there of what CBUS does. It's day-to-day, it's bread and butter, but the wider investments that it now can undertake on account of the fact that it's been in operation for now 40 years, investments across the country, cbussuper.com.au, their excellent past returns and past performance is not a reliable indicator for future performance. And yes, get your super sorted out with the great people, the industry fund, the one that started it all, CBUS.
0: Back in a tick. G'day, guys. This is Jimmy Neesham. You're listening to the Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. The Final Word story time with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. A quick mention for the NordVPN deal as well, because a lot of people have been getting a sweet discount with their four months free. If you don't know why a VPN is useful, we've been just telling you about a few of the things that it can do. Uh, another one is shopping and saving money. You can avoid price discrimination. Nobody likes price discrimination. Why would you want to be discriminated against in price? So you can find out if the same product is cheaper somewhere else by telling your computer that you're somewhere else. You can be like, what if I were in San Marino for instance, to see if you can buy something uh, from San Marino more cheaply and you can. Um, you can access foreign e-stores, apps and online auctions for a wider selection of items. And one NordVPN account protects up to six devices, so you don't need a stack of separate subscriptions. Yeah,
1: it does the trick. And uh, I've done that many times, especially when shopping around for flights, which is something that Jeff, you and I are doing a fair bit. And uh, you can uh, access your massive discount four months free if you sign up to the two-year deal for NordVPN. NordVPN.com slash T-F-W. Jeff, on with the show.
0: Next number, it is from Dave Hornsby, a friend of the show and final word 11 player um, who sent down a couple of dangerous overs and ruined both of his knees in the process during a Melbourne match in December. uh, He sent through a nerd pledge of $21 and uh, the clue is this. He's he's shifted from being a Julio, so that is just from having a flat number pledge that didn't signify uh, a nerd pledge number, He's, uh, his shift was to $21 and his clue just says this, this player schooled a lot of
1: people. <laughs> if you're watching on YouTube, I'm holding up the cap that, uh, that Dave uh, picked up and sorted out for us before our game against uh, against the Reds. So the final word, baggy gold, you get one of those if you play for the final word 11 in Australia. That's on my shelf and my bag of tricks here. And up there next to it is my uh, baggy blue final word cap for the England game. So if you want to turn out for the team this year, there will be plenty of opportunities. Now, subsequent to Dave sending, into this, sending in this clue, he also let me know that we're looking at something to do with education because it says schooled a lot of people, but it's not a teacher. So my first thinking was, well, okay, schooled a lot of people. It's some great educator, some teacher, some professor mm-hmm. who happened to do something in relation to 21, but Dave steered me away from that. And he wanted me to know that it was about the number 21, a statistical category belonging to the player with 21, but something slightly not what the player is known for, right? So that, that's the framing here. Mm-hmm. And the other nugget, Um, that was sent through was that it's someone who played for a second country. And we know that list is fairly small, so I was going through it and trying to work out who it could be. I was mindful it was a favourite of Dave's that he'd sent through and I sort of had about 10 swings and all of them were wrong, didn't quite line up. Then I remembered that the Scottish team we've talked about quite a bit over the run of Story Time. And often it's with players who are far from Scottish. Something of like an invitational eleven, wasn't it, Jeff? Through the eighties, yep. you, you know, Clive Rice most notably, but others like Malcolm Marshall, Desmond Haynes, Ed Cowan, like quite a few players who have got nothing to do with Scotland but lived there or played cricket there or invited to play there. I'm not sure how they squared that being the national team. In these Mm. games that were declared list day, certainly not one day status because they did have one day as where there would have been a higher bar to have met. But yeah, like the Scottish team's a weird one in that era.
0: Yeah, Raul Dravid um, famously yep. played a season for Scotland, um, mostly fifty-over stuff. But it, it was generally when they were a team in operating in English domestic competitions, yes. uh, or you know, when there was there was some sort of crossover there. They weren't playing
1: internationals against other. Yeah, countries. that's right. So like the, uh, I think they were in the NatWest fifty-over comp for a long time. So I mentioned mm-hmm. Desmond Haynes. I'm like, ah, didn't Gordon Greenwich? And I, yes, Gordon Greenwich did as well. And as I went through it, this worked really nicely. So we talked about Greenwich before. So I'm not going to go into his whole cricketing career, but I'll give you a bit of a snapshot of his fascinating life in the game. First thing to note is that you know Greenwich played 17 years of county cricket, but wasn't an overseas player initially because his family moved to England when he was 14. So he actually spent his formative teenage years in Reading. And so when he started playing for Hampshire right. at age 17 in 1970, I think I'm right in saying, he wasn't like an import as such. He was effectively through the the Hampshire system uh, and he made his first class debut for them in 1970. And that's two seasons before he played his first game of domestic cricket in the Caribbean for Barbados. So, you know, he's from Barbados originally, but his cricketing journey started in England where he was living at the time. He goes on to make his test debut in 1974 and, you know, the rest is history really. 108 test matches when that was a really big thing, like playing 100 test matches meant a fair bit more then. I know a lot of players do it now and it's still a huge milestone, but getting to 108 test matches when you're making a debut in 1974 means an incredibly long career, and that's what he enjoyed. He played all the way through until Australia's visit in early 1991, 17 years a Test cricketer. A few of the highlights, he made a ton on Testaboo at Bangalore in 1974. He made twin centuries uh, against England in 1976 at Old Trafford. They made another 100 in his next start at Leeds, so three centuries on the trot, which is quite rare in Test cricket. The incredible 214 not out at Lord's when they chased down 344 for the loss of one wicket. That, that was in 1984. That's his, his finest hour as a West Indian cricketer. He made a second double century in that series back at Old Trafford again, where he made the Twin Tons. He made 223, so we're still in 1984. Another double hundred against New Zealand in 1985. Another century at Lords in 1988. And he finished his career with a double century as well. He made 226 in his penultimate test match against Australia, which goes down as his test highest score. And appropriately, that was at Bridgetown in his home ground in Barbados. So yeah, you know, a mighty career for Gordon Greenwich for West Indies. He averaged forty-five, which again in that era really meant something. Like, you know, we, we saw Alistair Cook finish mm. with a test opening average of forty-five. Uh, we saw David Warner fall just short, I think I'm right in saying, Just Jeff, short, forty-four yeah. plus you know, maybe 44.8 or something like that. But Greenwich up above 45 in that great side. They didn't lose a series in the final decade of his career. So from 81 to 91, they were, they were undefeated in a, in a test series. Nearly 6,500 of his test runs were made in partnership with Desmond Haynes, that iconic Bayesian pair. Almost identical test records. 18 centuries in in Test cricket for for Desmond Haynes and and 18 for Greenwich as well. And just on that first-class Hampshire story, so he played with Hans until 1987. He made 48 first-class hundreds for his county, another 20 in the shorter form, so in 40, 50, 60 over cricket, so 68 hundreds for his club. And, yeah, the Scotland thing that he tacks on in the end, he played five games for them at the end of his career in 1990. One half century, not much more to speak of there. The thing that actually jumped out was something that you touched on a couple of weeks ago, Jeff. He's one of those cricketers that turned out for the Michael Parkinson World Eleven. He played for them <laughs> twice, yes. so just a reminder that, you know, Parkey was a, a, a huge cricket person. He was the, uh, he was the mm-hmm. president of the Taverners between 2015 and 2018, an organization close to our heart. He also served as the president of the Cricket Writers Club, so we had a serious presence there across the game in, in, in many different ways. But, yeah, how good having a, like a first-class fixture named after you? I, I looked at it, given these games were in 88, 89 and 1990, you know, some against Yorkshire and others against the MCC, all in the Scarborough mm-hmm. Festival, it kind of suggests to me that this was the fixture that used to be the DB Close 11 game, which I think finished in 86. Yeah. So there's, you know, this festival game they've played in the middle of the fortnight, which used to be about Brian Close and... And kind of got inherited by Michael Parkinson. That's my impression anyway.
0: Yeah, and he's, I mean, yeah, he's such a cricket enthusiast. He, he's probably my number one regret in terms of missed yeah. interviews, You know, someone that I wish we'd had the chance to speak to before he passed away recently. He seemed like such an eternal presence that you just assumed he'd always I might been. get his
1: son to come on at some stage, Michael Jr., who uh, we're organising a fixture with at the moment. I won't give anything away there. But um, long story short is that, that that cricketing presence will remain for that family. But, yeah, the stunning names that turned out for the, the Parkinson World 11 you know, Crow, Dujon, Green great batch. Haynes, Harper, Hooper, Hussain, Imran Khan, who's in the news again. I was reading a report on the upcoming Pakistani mm. elections last night. Fucking all happening there. Brian Lara, Jeff Lawson, Lily, Shastri, Wasim, Akram, Mark Waugh. So we must learn more about these games because so many of those names listed are people we sort of have bits and pieces to do with in our in our commentary lives. Mm. So there must be more to be told about that story. Anyway, what's the 21 about for Gordon Greenwich? Well, relatively easy comparatively. You go to his quick info page and you look at the wickets and you add them up. There's a one, uh, there's an 18 and there's a two, which makes 21. There's actually one crossover because one of the the list day wickets was taken in a one day international. So he took 20 professional wickets. But who was the one day wicket, Jeff? Who I I hear you asking down the screen. Well, he only bowled twice in one days. They were in consecutive one day internationals in 1980. At Leeds, then at Lords. And at Leeds... Defending 198, they give him a trundle. So, you know, relatively low scoring game. They bowl out England for 174 and he's part of that victory with the ball. Greenwich one for 21 from four overs and he took a big wicket too, a middle order wicket. Friend of the show, David Bumble Lloyd, was the one international wicket for Gordon Greenwich. Uh, He bowled him in that one day at Leeds in, in 1980, one of those 20 wickets for Dave Hornsby. As for the education link, there's now a school named after him in Barbados, a giant of the game in England, the West Indies, and briefly Scotland, Gordon Greenwich for Dave Hornsby, twenty one zero zero his number.
0: That was Nathan. So, so, so the number was adding up. It was duplicating a yeah. wicket from List A and ODI cricket. Wait, there is man, you've you definitely needed some assistance to find that. That's that's what that's what Justin yes. Lee was doing when he was saying that David Warner and Steve Smith had made eighty odd first class hundreds um, because he added their test tons and their first-class tons together.
1: He, he did it when sledging Maxie, remember? He went through Glenn Maxwell's first-class mm. hundreds of which are, I don't know how many there are exactly, it's like nine or ten or something like that. Hasn't added to it since the 278 that he made against New South Wales and he's like, well, he's made nine and Steve Smith's made X and he yeah, added 84. The, yeah, and he, he, well, it wasn't even that many. It was like, you know, but he simply, you know, added the, the first-class and test columns together and didn't realise mm. that um, the – the test hundreds are absorbed within the first-class number. He probably should know, given that JL made like 86, I think it was, first-class hundreds or something ridiculous. So he'd be mm. very aware of um, how that all works. Anyway, uh, that's that's Dave. And next up's you, Jeff. Matthew Lincoln, this is a free hit. love a free hit. 680 AUD. Over to you. Okay. Uh, this is
0: definitely not the right answer because my answer is about something that happened in the last week and thus <laughs> – Matthew Lincoln could not time travel to that extent, but given that this number didn't have a clue, I thought maybe it's just a free swing or maybe Matthew will enjoy this answer more than the one he would have wanted anyway, but I wanted to do this, so I'm going to do it. 680. Uh, Let's just start by being uh, completely transparent about what my interpretation of the number means. I flagged this on the weekly show uh, a few days ago, if you listen to that. Neil Brand, South Africa's new test captain, took six for 119 in the test match against New Zealand in the last few days and then took two for 52. So 680 is six wickets in an innings and eight wickets in the match. That's how I'm interpreting it for this particular answer. He was also test captain on debut, one of those rarities, and he opened the batting. In doing so, he was caught behind of Kyle Jamison for four and bowled by Tim Southey for three. And the question was posed in our Discord chat. Was this the first time that an opening bat had taken more wickets than they had made runs in a test match, which was a very good question that I spent a lot of time looking at because these are the kind of things we like to do. There were some suggestions that it probably wasn't because there would be someone like a Sanath Jayasuria type who used to bowl and open the batting, and surely there'd be a game where a player like that would have made a pair and then taken a wicket, and and thus they would have had uh, more wickets than runs. Nobody's ever as far as I can tell, made a pair while opening the batting and also taken a wicket in the same test match. As far as I know, that's never happened. And it certainly never happened to Sanath, the man with two phones. But there are a few players who did both open the batting and bowl where they took between two and four wickets and made between one and three runs. That has happened before.
1: Okay, okay. So, so the, the, the threshold question about on debut. Um, about oh, yeah. whether someone had, so you've completely ruled that out this is this is a um, a standalone. so we're, we're, we're digging deeper here to see whether it's happened at all not just about a debutante
0: yeah, no, no, it's not about debuts. It's just whether it's happened at all. So right, nobody, okay. nobody has made nobody's made zero runs opening the batting and taken a wicket. Okay. But there are a couple of players who've who've made one or two or three runs and taken two or three or four wickets, okay. mostly in the early days. So Harry Trott did it a couple of times. Charlie McCartney did it, who we mentioned earlier. A Hampshire all-rounder named Alex Kennedy did it in South Africa in the 1920s. Um, Ravi Shastri, Ted Dexter. But... They're not necessarily players who opened all the time and and there are a few who really shouldn't count because there are there are instances where tail were put up to open the batting. So Michael Bracewell got sent out by New Zealand against Pakistan recently to try to pinch hit when they were chasing, what, 120 in... 10 overs or whatever it was, 20 overs, something like that. Arthur Maley had to go up the top of the order, the leg spinner, his second mention for the day. Safras Nawaz got sent out to open once when Pakistan needed one run to win in the fourth innings, and he hit that ball for four, so he finished with four runs and five wickets in the match. And my favourite bit, the weirdest bit, it happened with two players batting together in the same game once. New Zealand had Jeff Howarth and Danny Morrison sent out to open the batting when they needed like three to win or something. And they both made a couple of runs, but they'd taken several wickets in the match, so they ended up with more wickets than runs. Or actually, maybe even better was this, this one, Adam. 1954, Old Trafford, Pakistan, England. Pakistan are following on. They've got a left-arm orthodox spinner named shujauddin Din, who is batting at number 10. The 11's dismissed. He's not out. They have to follow on. And so he's just told to stay out there. And Hanif Mohammed Muhammad comes out to bat with him, they're like, don't bother walking back in. Just, just continue. So, MTR's Ahmed, the wicket keeper, doesn't bother coming out.
1: I think I feel like I've seen that happen before, you know, where when following on, where, where teams are like, if you've got the pads on already, just crack on. Let's not, that, it's more a sort of, you know, uh, 5th 11 on a Saturday when the game's fading yep. than anything else, yep. you know, flipping the batting order, but not quite. Well, I suppose to an extent, did it happen in the World Cup final like that? I mean, it did if you think about it, because Ben Stokes was batting till the very end. And I suppose they didn't know whether they'd be batting or bowling first in the super over, but he did go from batting out to start another inning straight away, weird as it was.
0: Yeah. Well, usually, yeah, the, the side batting second in the match, bats first in the super over. That's the. Oh, right. usually the playing conditions. Okay, um, I didn't know that. So, <laughs> yeah, there's no toss for it. They, okay. they just carry straight on. But, yeah, it was you know he and Butler were the ones who'd been hitting the ball well, so they pretty much continued. Mm. Anyway, none of these are genuine openers, right? I mean, Jack Leach as well, there's a match in Candy mm. where he takes eight wickets and he opens the batting in one of the innings and makes one run. So he qualifies. There's a guy called Doug Menches who presumably invented Twitter, I guess. Johannesburg, 1923. <laughs> four I, wickets and three runs.
1: I, I, so by the way, we just took a break a moment ago to to, to grab a drink and, and regroup again, and I had a quick look at my Twitter Menchies. And fair to say, Jeff, once again, you are copying it from the football fans of the world who don't like your take on uh, on the obstructing the field the dismissal in the under nineteens. How shocked am I? How shocked am I That's that the that, that England casual fans are refusing to listen to the whoa to the laws? Fuck me! What a surprise! Anyway, you, you can wow. enjoy that yourself when you um you pick it picking it up later today. Do you,
0: do you know what some of the some of the most beautiful words in in the English language are? Aside from Geelong bypass, um, they are uh, mute this conversation. <laughs> beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. It just. You just never see it again. Yeah yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Who would I wonder if it has anything to do with the fact that it was an England under 19s player um, who was dismissed by breaking the laws of the game? Mm. Curious. Anyway, um, right. We're, we're, looking at, um, we're looking at Doug Menchies, whether he's a legit opener. One of those confusing early tw- 20th century things. Three test innings, opens twice and bats at number eight once. So who knows? But then, in terms of players who've got slightly more impressive numbers in doing this, who else but Vinu Mancad? 1953. West Indies Tour, they're playing in Barbados. He makes three runs and takes five wickets in the match, including Weeks, Worrell and Stolmeyer. You can always rely on Vino Mankad to be in an interesting statistical category. A couple of honourable mentions who didn't quite get there. Shane Watson in the Cape Town debacle of 2011 took five wickets and made seven runs, nearly. Trevor Goddard for South Africa had a couple of matches. He had a match with eight wickets and 18 runs and seven wickets and 16 runs, and he did genuinely open the batting for that South African side. But I've got a couple of real standouts for you, Adam. George Lohman. uh, Was he an opening bat? Not really. Only uh, batted, opened the batting twice in his career. But on this tour in 1896 in Johannesburg, opens the batting, makes two. And then when they bowl, he takes nine for 28. (laughs) 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 And follows it up with three for 43 and forcing the follow on. So 12 wickets and two runs has to be the most disproportionate ratio, I would have thought. And then I was like, well, can anyone do better than that? 12 wickets. And wouldn't you know it, who else would it be? Vinu Mancat again. India, Pakistan, Delhi, 1952, Vino Mankad opening the batting with Pankaj Roy, one of our favourite pairings. They only put on 19. Mankad's out with the score on 26, but he's still made 11. You would think if you've made 11 in the first innings, you're out of the running for the more wickets than runs opening the batting stakes. Not Vino Mankad, who, um, who, who goes on to take, what, eight for, and then takes five for 79 in the follow-on, 8 for 52, 5 for 79, 13 wickets and 11 runs in the match. But that brings us to the caveat, which is that he only batted once. So, legit opener, did the job up top plenty. I'm happy to regard him as an opener. But can you mark him, can you group him in with Neil Brand, who batted twice? So if I refined my search to two innings, so a player who's batted twice in a match and has more wickets than runs opening the batting, very, very few. We've got Craig Brathwaite took two wickets and made one run in Murpur. Moen Ali took four wickets and made two runs in Dubai. West Indies captain John Goddard, a different Goddard, in 1948, made four runs and took six wickets against England, including five for 31 in the first innings. So uh, he goes in with Neil Brand in terms of having a five-wicket bag as well. He died at the bicentenary test in 1987. Oh right, interestingly, John Goddard.
1: Yeah, I thought about this, and not about him, but in reference to there must be a, an interesting book to be written, or at least essay to be penned about test cricketers who who have died at a test match. Mm. And none on the field, of course, in, in a test playing context. But Billy Murdoch had a heart attack watching mm. a test match at the MCG. And well, they, I think the report was that his heart exploded, but you know, I'm sure they're depicting the same thing. And John Goddard. Mm. So there's there's at least yeah there there you go. There's at least two. But there'd, there'd be others. You you would think, without wanting to be too morbid. Anyway, please continue.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm not sure. I don't know if it was during play or, but it was while he was in London, having been invited by the MCC to come to the game. Anyway, um, Neil Brand in this qualification is top of the pile with his eight wickets and seven runs. And those four are the only players to open huh. in two innings and take more wickets than they scored runs. In Test cricket, so it may be a, a dismal contest between South Africa and New Zealand, but it's given us some wildly entertaining passages of play, and it has given us this particular piece of history.
1: Brilliant! That's a that's a good one. Uh, thank you uh, for Matthew for the timing being so spot on uh, that Jeff was able to do that in the week where Neil Brand took his, and it was you know eight for the match. We'll see how he goes in the second Test at Hamilton, which begins on mm-hmm. the 13th of February.
0: Hi, my name's Kate Cross and you're listening to The Final
1: Word with Adam and Jeff. Next is meet 500USD. This is a new pledger, Ditya Chowji, and uh, I've been sent a clue for this one, Jeff.
0: It says, refers to a player's performance during a particular test series. I have a distinct memory of a tall player walking the boundary line, not being part of the 11 in that match during what was possibly my first cricket viewing experience at a stadium. The stadium was in my hometown, now defunct, and oddly referred to in Storytime 157, and you did a podcast out of this stadium (laughs) during Australia's last visit to India. The player concerned debuted in the first match of this three-match series. So, Adam, presumably that has to mean this is Nagpur Mm. and that Nagpur was not the first
1: match of the series? Well, let me just say to begin, Aditya, I love this clue because there are so many little bits to it that I'm able to, by process of elimination, work out who you're referring to, right? So it didn't assume any prior knowledge. Sometimes the challenge with these clues is that it assumes it will pick up what you're putting down and... Most Mm. of the time we don't and then we end up in the wrong place and it ends up being a a revisit and and all the rest of it. In order to get your um, number solved the first time around, quite a precise clue which gives us lots of different markers Mm -hmm. like this or give us a free hit, one or the other. Anyway, specific instructions without giving away the answer is the other part here. didn't tell me who it was but I was able to work it out. So I know we're at Nagpur. Didn't say Nagpur but I know we were – we were there recording a podcast and we probably referred to it in Storytime 157.
0: You probably talked about Damien Martin or something. Yep. You usually talk about Damien Martin 114.
1: Yeah, that that, that almost certainly would have been it. Um, 12 story times ago, I reckon we came back to, for some reason, Martin and his. Um, oh, you know what it was? It was Guy Hornsby and Second Chances and Guys 114 referred to it. We had mm. Guys That was more Dave. recent,
0: though. That was only a couple of. Oh, no, yeah, no, that it was, would have been when you talked about it for yeah, the first time. Yeah, it was time. twice yeah. in
1: quick succession. Guy's um, number came up uh, once yep. when I think I was in Australia anyway. Um, so we're in Nagpur at the old ground. It's the VCA ground, I think, from memory it's called, mm-hmm. Jeff, something like that. Yep. So we're looking for somebody who... Deboot in India in the first test of a series, but not Nagpur, because by deduction, if you're seeing this tall player walking around the boundary in the second test of the series, it couldn't have been a test played at Nagpur. And also a reference at the bottom Mm -hmm. of it being a three-test match series. So I can start ruling stuff out from there alone. My first thought was 2004, where there was a test at Nagpur, but that was a four-test series. Then I thought, what about England 2005, when they played their Cook Century on Deboot? But that was in the first test at Nagpur. Right. So that had to be ruled out as well. So digging a bit deeper, there was a Sri Lanka Test series in India in 1997 where the second Test was played at Nagpur. It was a three Test series. I'm like, yeah, beauty, it must be that. However, the only debutant in the first Test match was a wicketkeeper who was five foot four in the old money. So that's Ooh, not going to be the tall cricketer referred to here. Zimbabwe played two test match series against India where Nagpur featured in the series, but both, were, three. but both were played in two test trysts rather than series. Aha. And then I found it. Well what I thought must be it anyway and I was right. A three test series that India played against the West Indies in the Uh, The season of 1994-95, my favourite ever summer in Australia. And in the November of uh, 1994 and into 95, there was a three-test series that began at Mumbai, then moved to Nagpur. Now, who debuted at the work, rest and play and was dropped straight away for the second test match? A big man, a huge man, six foot eight of a man, Cameron Cuffey. Doesn't get much taller. Oh, yes. Must be in. Bang, we're in. There's our starting point. As I said earlier with Rossi to start the show with my first answer, Hmm. we don't mess with the order of these clues. Sometimes they're just meant to be. And today, as we record this, the 8th of February, it's Cameron Cuffey's 54th birthday. He was born on the 8th of February, this day in 1970 in South Rivers, St. Wow. Vincent. So um, spot on that we're about to have a conversation around Cameron Cuffey on this day. I hope he listens mm. to it.
0: I feel like we are the social media admin for a cricket magazine um, completely out of ideas, just looking to fill up the feed with some bullshit. <laughs> Happy <laughs> birthday, Cameron Cuffey.
1: <laughs> well, he warrants it. I, I, I've, I've grown quite sympathetic to Cuffey when reading through his profile. Like I remember him and this is yep. born out in the- in the I remember
0: way, him getting belted in Australia in two thousand one, wasn't it, when he, um, or was it the series after that? He played some of the one-dayers. Yeah, that summer, he, he played
1: remember. the one-dayers, but, I mean, you know, I, I remember him, and this is right, the, as the guy who kind of came along after Courtney and Kirtley and Bish, you know, and that's that great production line. Yeah generation after generation of West Indies quicks. And because Cuffy's six foot eight, they think he's going to be the next Patrick Patterson who'd finished up by this stage, but he didn't really bang yeah. the door down as such. He played, uh, he made his first class debut in the Caribbean in 1991, 92. Then he had a really strong 93, 94 season where he took his wickets at 18, but only 24 of them. So we're not talking about like a huge sample size or any of that, but interestingly on the back of a 93, 94 season, where he's building in momentum at age 23. Surrey pick him up as one of their overseas players for that campaign. And he plays pretty much the whole season, 13 matches in 1994 in England where he claims 36 wickets at 30. So, you know, nice going at age 24. And essentially it's that summer in England that gets him on the plane to India for that tour. Now, he played the one day as which preceded the test matches and did okay without dominating Mm His best performance was two for 19 on international debut in a one-dayer against India. He picked up uh, Mohammed Azradin, the Indian captain, as his first international wicket, which is a, a pretty good scalp to have. And then he gets his test cap. At Mumbai, uh, and to just to move off this for a sec, Barat was there, so he's in that group with us, and he says that as an eight-year-old boy, uh, he was there and he remembers Cameron Cuffey's Test debut. It wasn't the first time that Barat had been to Wankaday for a Test match. That was in 1993 when England were there. Anyway, 12 months on in, in 1994, it's a really good Test match. India 272. And 3.33 defeat the West Indies, 2.43 and 2.66 by 96 runs. So, a similar score pattern to what we had at Vizag last week with India and England. Cuffey bowled first change. Unfortunately, he um, didn't take a wicket in his first innings in Test cricket. Courtney Welsh got greedy and picked up a six for. But he did get a wicket in the second innings, one for 46. Anil Kumble, um, not Sachin, sadly. I thought maybe he could be one of this group who've um, mm, got Sachin as his first wicket in Test. But that wasn't to be. And, yeah, that, that was not enough to keep him in the side. He's dropped for Nagpur. They draw that second test match and they move to the third match of the series, the third and final match, you know, with a fair bit on the line here, right? This is um, this is before the Windies have lost a series since 1981. It's before Australia win there in 1995. So they're trying to keep this record intact and they need to win the third test to do so because they're 1-0 down. And they bring back Cameron Cuffey. But before getting to that, I'll note that this is the year of Jimmy Adams, 1994, when he was just invincible. Jimmy Adams. Yeah, you won't be surprised to learn, Jeff, that Adams made 174 in the first innings, 78 in the second innings. And on the weekly show, we were talking about those historic rankings and where players hit. I'm fairly sure it's Bradman, Hobbs, Adams for at one point in time having the highest marker or, or something like that. So He was on that that extraordinary run. And Cuffy does play his role and they do win the test. They win by 243 runs. They flog India. Um, He takes three for 80 in the first innings. This time it included Sachin, I'll have you know. And then a really nice touch in the second innings when India are chasing a million and they're bowled out for about 150. Then Katapati Raju, one of the most satisfying names to say in all of world cricket, is the last man out. He's caught behind to Cameron Cuffy, So Cuffy took the wicket, but won the test match. So back to the number, 5-0-0 zero, zero for Aditya it must be the five wickets that Cameron Cuffy took in his debut series. And as we move away from that series specifically, it, he, I mean he does have a bit of a career as a test player but sadly had to wait. So between 1994 and January 1997, he doesn't get another test match at all. Then he gets, gets picked for that horrible Adelaide test that's mostly known for Michael Bevan taking 11 wickets and and uh, Patterson Thompson overstepping over 30 times. We've told that story a number of times on the show. Mm. Cuffy took two for 116. The Windies only bowled once in that match. And then there's another long delay. So he plays the two test matches in 94, one in 97. Has to wait till 2001 for his third crack. And that's a bit of an extended go. He plays 10 test matches in, in 2002. His final matches are back in India, Late in 2002, eight years after his international debut, a perfectly commendable 43 wickets at 34 across 15 test matches in his career, a further 41 wickets in 41 one-day internationals. And a quick nugget on this before we leave, Cuffy is the only cricketer in one-day history to be awarded the Player of the Match award without taking a wicket and without making a run. So this is in mm. June, 2001 against Zimbabwe at Harare. They're defending 266 for five and Zimbabwe kept 239 and Cuffy took none for 20 from his 10. And given that no other bowler had, well, I suppose it wasn't a, it wasn't a particularly high scoring game, but the the next best economy rate was 3.5. So the match officials gave Cuffy player of the match for none for 20 from 10, which is nice. I like it when stuff like that happens. It's the, uh, the Robert Klomp that we, we've talked about in the past um, for, for where a player has been recognised as player of the match for an unorthodox contribution. Anyway, uh, Cameron Cuffey, uh, happy 54th birthday. The perfect time uh, to be uh, uh, telling the story of him for a DTF for 500.
0: Very good. I like it. I've got one quick revisit, which was from Adam T, who said, don't spend too much time on it, Um, but it's been sitting in the list for months because we couldn't work it out and then we couldn't get back in touch with Adam. So if you are still listening to the show, Adam T, I'm finally going to solve your revisit. Uh, The (laughs) pledge was $21.49, and we looked at a bunch of different things. I can't even remember what we looked at. It was so far ago. We knew that it had to be broken up into two, one, four, and nine.
1: Yes. So this one is way back, the true depths of what Crick Info has to offer. And it was in the episode, the gloves are off time for war. So you're right, Jeff, this is a, a fairly long time ago. I remember that episode title. So, yeah. um, but you've been, yeah, been able to at last solve it. So there's no statute of limitations on revisits. And uh, I'm glad that's the case. I think we've had a couple that have gone back more than 12 months and this will this will fit into that category as well.
0: I think that was I think that was the clue that was originally sent in was the gloves are off time for war. It might have been about Matthew Wade bowling. Oh at right, wacker, right, okay. something like that. And so I think I talked about Tim Zora bowling on the the Ashes tour of ninety um, of three, early nineties, ninety three. That's right. And uh, you know wicket keepers bowling is always a a nice curiosity. And I spent a lot of time looking at the Alfred Littleton innings, which if you don't know that story, we have told it before. It's a it's a very early days cricket sort of situation where it's in the days where you can't declare and so you just have to get yourself out if you're trying to close your innings to try to bowl out the opposition. And so um, the the wicketkeeper, the England keeper, Alfred Littleton, takes the pads off and, and bowls underarm lobs and ends up taking four for 21. And I was like, well three of the four numbers are there. I've got 2149. And, and, and Adam's original clue said The 2149 should be read as 2 and 1, 4 and 9. So I was really trying to shoehorn it in for for weeks and months and it just never quite worked. And then we realised you've got to go even further back. This is when he says the depths. This is the absolute depths. You've got to go to March 1856, Adam. Adam. A first class match between Victoria and New South Wales at the Melbourne Cricket Ground that I'm sure was not a, um, not a very advanced bit of uh, stadium architecture at the time. And our main character today is the wicketkeeper for the Victorian team by the name of Frederick Lowe who is on first-class debut and uh, indeed this is his last first-class match. There aren't, isn't a lot of first-class cricket at the times and it's very 1850s because the scores are very, very low. Victoria get bowled out by New South Wales for 63. Humorously, this was recorded on the scorecard, Adam, as a timeless test and it's over in two days <laughs> because no, no, nobody needed that long to do it. Uh, what was it, 34 overs, 52 overs, 23 overs... Twenty overs, So they've got like a day and a half of, of modern standards of test cricket in.
1: Well, are we, where are we in the gold rush? 1856 game being played at Melbourne. We're, we're kind of right in the teeth of it, aren't we?
0: I don't think it's happened yet, has it? It's about 18... 1860, isn't it? Okay. I, I had it in my mind as 1850s. I so felt, to... you
1: know, felt like the state parliament was Maybe. built around 1850-something. And, of course, the Legislative Council is made pretty much in solid gold from the gold rush. Um, so mm. I, I thought that might've been that, but maybe we're, we're a decade off. Anyway, interesting time maybe. In, in the history of the colony.
0: I, I don't, obviously, you know, my school excursion to Sovereign Hill didn't stick. I can't remember <laughs> exactly what year. I just know it's broadly within that sort of 20 year period somewhere. Um, when's the, when's the Eureka Stockade? Uh, is that 1860? I feel like I should
1: know that. We should ask, um, you, something you know, we go. could ask, we, we, could ask Peter, we could ask, Peter. we could ask Peter Lawler. Mm. Eight, yeah. eight, He's eight, got a like pub doing there after him yeah. in
0: Ballarat. I do like it. Um, people bring it up sometimes. Anyway, Victoria makes 63, top scorer of 16, opening the batting from John Henry Mather. New South Wales makes 76, so that's a lead of 13 runs, which is pretty significant in the circumstances. And uh, you always love to see a number 11 top score for New South Wales. Richard Driver, Dick Driver, um, (laughs) makes 18 down the order. So they've got a lead of 13 and then they absolutely romp through the Victorians for 28 runs. The highest score is 11. Everybody else makes single figures. Our man, Frederick Lowe, the keeper, who's batting down at number nine, is one not out robbed of the chance to go on and that means that they've got a lead of only 15 they've set New South Wales 16 to win and they almost bloody win the thing (laughs) they just about pull it off and they do this Adam using two bowlers so they use uh, Elliot who they've used in the first innings who took 7 for 25 in the first innings and instead of either of the bowlers that they used, the other bowlers they used in their first innings they get Frederick Lowe to take the gloves off and send down nine overs, during which he takes four for nine. Four for nine. Uh, so chasing 16, four for nine by the wicket keeper, and it ends up being seven wickets down. Elliot takes three. So New South Wales are seven for 16 when they crawl across the line. Now, surely, surely the four and the nine have to be there. And I'm a, I'm looking at what he made with the bat. He made one not out and he made two in the first innings. So oh. two and one, four and nine, there's our number for Adam T.
1: Well done for getting to the bottom of that. That's one of those clues that, uh, yes, does rather assume quite a bit. But you've got there in the end and that's all that matters. We've got some confirmations as well. Uh, 648 Will Sanford, this was the riot. We've told this story at our live show the Demon Spoff of taking six for 48 in, um, what's that Twitter account? Uh, photos that precede horrible events or whatever. Well, was it wasn't a horrible event mm-hmm. for the next match at Sydney. It was a joyous one in many ways, the Banjo-Patterson riot. I don't know why I picked him. Of all the people I could have picked, I picked Banjo Patterson. Anyway, Will says, finally caught up with story time. Delighted to hear my 648 got a run in episode 156 and led to the Monkey Hornby tale. We told another Monkey Hornby mm-hmm. um, story on story time last week. Not just a story, but a full ensemble cast. Banjo, Edmund Barton, VFL players could not ask for a better yarn for my money. My original idea pales in comparison. Happy to put it down as a confirmation and I'll jump back on the repledge bandwagon. That's another thing that we love. If we tell a better story than the one you, Wanted, just let it roll. Let it ride. Like that great movie from the late 80s about going to the track and, and winning every race consecutively on the punt. That's what we've done for Will Sanford. The real Victor Trumper, 343. Jeff, we got that right as well.
0: <laughs> Real Victor Trumper says, uh, my 343 was referring to the 343 runs scored by Percy Perrin, which could not save Essex from losing within three days. I felt under pressure to deliver a good story because the two of you appeared in a dream telling me my previous nerd pledges were not good enough. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> That is that is quite the complex that you've got there, RVT. Uh, he said, I felt the pressure because of how good the story times have been. Prisoners, fake Olympics, French cricketers, Monkey Hornby. It keeps coming up, French cricketers. Um, just an aside here, Adam, uh, from some of uh, the research we've been continuing to do into Maurice Callum and France's greatest cricketer, and his mother was a celebrated pianist in Australia. When she left Sydney, there was a, a collection, a movement of prominent local gentlemen assembled to put around a collection to send her off in style and have a, a fair <laughs> Well and it was hosted by local MP Edmund Barton. Um so Edmund Barton was a big fan <laughs> of the piano playing of Maurice Kellerman's mum. Wow. Yeah.
1: It was a small yeah. it was a small yeah. country, wasn't it, Australia? I mean it wasn't a country was. in eighteen ninety nine, but it was a small, you know. We were joking mm. earlier about Gibraltar and running into people that no. I think so it goes for New South Wales and Victoria and other heavily populated parts of what would later become Australia in the 19th century. I think that's a reasonable assumption.
0: And uh, RVT, Real Victor Trumper, also refers back to a previous pledge of 355 where we didn't untangle the clue that said one of the most commonly uttered phrases on the show. That phrase was past performance is not a reliable (laughs) indicator of future performance (laughs) because his pledge related to Ravi Bapara's um, innings streak that went duck, 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 104, 143, 108. (laughs) Um, That equals 355 runs. Anyway, um, thank you, Real
1: Victor Trumpa. Beauty and Richard Jones here. Thanks, Adam, for the Trevor Jesty deep dive. I enjoyed that. The 327 is based on what Google says was his first class average of 32.7. This surprised me. I'm pretty sure um, this is one of those where there is a there is a difference between what um, Google says and what wherever I was reading says. Because I would have seen that. Mm. I would have seen that in the numbers. Anyway, as an aside, despite being English, I did live in Sydney between 1989 and 1992. Uh, I have. An Aussie passport. He says during that time I was out of work for a few months and was forced to discover Devon, the food which we were talking about a few weeks ago. So I understand
0: oh God, your I'm preamble. Sorry.
1: I think we were talking about Devon in sort of more of a door snake context, but more yeah. of, more of a I was talking, more talking a, about more of, a, the, more of a, no, a Drake to, context.
0: I was just no, it was it was just disgusting foods, but the fact that some vocabulary is not shared, so when you talk about like, oh, right. foul processed meatloaf and refer to it as Devon, English people don't know what you're talking ah, about, right. Richard does. Okay. I just also just checked Trevor Jesty's quick info and it is thirty two point seven. What have I done
1: there? So I, I spent I spent a long I spent it. a long time reading about You were looking at his ODIs. I was, that's true. i looked at all of his one day internationals that he played in that um eighty two, eighty three tour. Anyway, it's solved. It's yeah, correct right. for Richard. Mm-hmm. And Glenfin Finkel simply sent through a, a green tick in our group in, in reference to his one two three two, which was 1,232 runs between the highest score in each possible result in a test match, which was on last week's yep. revisit show. And, Jeff, remarkably, that's it. I thought that was going to be a lot longer show than it was, but we've managed to um, get through quite a lot. We've done it all for seabussuper.com.au. We bloody love them. If you love what we do or even just a partial to it, patreon.com forward slash the final word. Join our Discord, be part of our wider world, play games of cricket with us. Talk to us about things that you enjoy in the game, the nicest corner of the internet when it comes to cricket. That's for certain. Uh, And you can do so and put a pledge in the queue and we'll keep making this show for as long as you keep sending the numbers through. And if you want to be part of the Lord's Taverners effort to raise 30 grand, you can A, donate in the show notes, but you can still run the 10K. Don't be shy about that be part of our weekend in Scotland on the 25th, 26th and 27th of May, which is a bank holiday weekend.
0: And I'll, I'll say this again at the start of the show next week when I remember, but um, if we've missed your revisit because we have been cleaning up uh, some of them, we probably a few have slipped through the cracks. Do let us know. Um, we don't want don't want you to feel neglected and abandoned.
1: For, yeah, final word, cricket at gmail.com might be the best way of doing that. Like, And this is no criticism. It's just the nature of the beast. Our Discord Nerd Pledge channel, it is easy to miss stuff because so much is going on. So, um, yeah, DM us or send us an email and we'll certainly get to that. And, and send me an email or a DM if you want a Glenn Maxwell T-shirt. 20 quid, I'll pop it in the post. That's if you're in the UK. If you're in Australia, the link's in the show notes.
0: Yep. If you play for the Gibraltar cricket team, get 11 and kid, them, kid everybody out. Okay, this has been the final word. Story time. 169. Jeff Lemon. Adam Collins. We'll see you next time.
1: Have a nice weekend. So you know what I, meant? Yeah. I had to go.